Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 67, I speak with Frank Cooley, the CEO of 8Squad, that grew 103% last financial year to do over $17 million in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. We discuss why not liking school led him to martial arts, quickly reaching world-class level, creating a mental discipline that he still uses decades later. Falling into tech in his 20s before exploring real estate development and losing over $1 million from predatory lawyers and lenders. Maximizing health and performance, bumping up against the challenges of innovating in the healthcare and PTSD treatment space, and why bureaucracy stopped that business. Why he came in to run 8Squad and grow it to a 100-plus person Salesforce consultancy, doubling in size each year using a decentralized holacracy management system that is very different from traditional top-down management. If you're looking for a leading boutique Salesforce Summit partner that puts humans first, check out 8squad.com.au. That's the number 8, S-Q-U-A-D.com.au. So I'm here with Frank Cooley, the CEO of 8Squad. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started 8Squad? What did you study? What type of early roles or organizations did you work in? Mm, so, um, my schooling career days were not really schooling days for me. I was a little bit too much of a rebel growing up, um, and so I found uh, I found martial arts very early in life and uh, competed professionally. By the I was competing pro actually from a very early age, from about fourteen, fifteen years old, um, and so I was uh, exposed to kind of that really kind of high level. Com- competing and sporting space uh young um did and, and and did that for quite some time uh kept competed uh right through to probably my early 20s although um martial arts I'm 50 now and martial arts back in my day uh especially when you when I made the transition to combat the combat side of martial arts wasn't a good place for a young guy and uh, you can get yourself into more trouble than you really should be. So I, I then uh, took a, a – um, it was purely by chance. I, I met a, a guy who had offered me a job in tech because he just liked my my style and um, I had no I had no education in, in technology. I did a, I, I did a course at Computer Power back then, but it like, you know, I flunked it badly and uh and 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 then this was in the early days of the you know the home office the pc right um and so i started working for a guy yeah, joseph hayek at uh, george's computers in elizabeth street never forget it and uh all because he liked my style and uh you know he gave me a job and that really begun a career in tech for me um failed the first couple of jobs in tech dismally um you know I, I was learning on my feet um thing the thing that I did get from my martial arts was I, I was a good learner you know um that was probably the one skill I'd very I'd honed very sharply and you know how to deal with people right I was I was teaching from a very young age so I was you know used to interacting right with with people older than me so 
um, that really set me a good a good basis. But I had to learn this whole new language. And, and was that programming? No, programming no, or hardware or electrical engineering. Yeah, no, it was um, selling PCs. Right in the early days of you know four eight sixes. Right. Um, and uh, so I had to learn what a PC is and what it does and what, what software runs on it and all that kind of stuff. Um, I never really had much exposure to exposure to PCs or anything like that um, in, in my days growing up. You know, I was very sporty, right? So I never spent much time indoors. Um, so, yeah, so that was kind of the beginning. And then I probably about four or five years in um, and a few job failures, I, I found my way into software. Um and that was in a distribution company back then. And uh, and uh, when they took on a distributorship for IBM, I started getting exposed to a lot of uh, kind of enterprise software products, especially middleware and integration back then. And uh, I was the, I became the product manager, and that led me to uh, a, a few big successes um, in in that IBM distribution space and IBM software space. I ended up then running the Asia Pack Alliance for IBM for a company called Software Spectrum back then, and they later got bought out and bought out again. And I think they've just been bought out again. I think um, so. Um, that kind of then took me into the world of software, and and really never looked back since. You know, um, worked for my first startup just coming out of Software Spectrum, which was a Danish company selling CRM software that was based on Lotus Notes, right? Um, and that's that's not a that's not something you hear very often in today's world. But uh, that was really cool because one of the Danes had a great. I learned really what it meant to have a good culture, what a culture was. You know, um, he was a very charismatic CEO. Um, there was a, a, a pre-sales lead right. who was sent out from Denmark, and it was Soren and myself who pretty much were running the business here. Um, you know, we identified an acquisition, bought out a services business here in the Lotus space, and uh, then they bought in a kind of professional leader who, who was the MD of the business. And, you know, that was my first exposure to to really uh, the startup scene, the startup space. Um, went and started my own company after that. This was this kind of was around, and, and the reason I remember, because I remember switching on a TV, it was around the time of 9-11, right, and kind of the world changed and I, and I left IT Factory. Um, they came into their own challenges after that as well. But um, I left there and thought, you know what, I'm going to do something different. And I went in and started a a, a, a development, you know, like a, a literally a, a housing, you know, apartment development business, right? It's the, I'm Italian, it's what you do, you know, you go and build stuff. Um, and uh, failed amazingly. Um you know, took on a we. You know, I, I I like picking big fights. It was something that you know I I learned young to you know step in a ring with guys bigger than yourself. And in this case, I did the same thing in business and and literally lost everything. Right? It was like I was think I was just turned thirty years old. I'd spent ten years building a career in tech, and then everything I'd made, you know, we lost. Um. So and so, what happened was that like you were buying a property to renovate well, and flip it, or you're subcontracting under a bigger sort of builder, and that's where the dispute was. Or no, no, I I learned a very harsh lesson in when you swim with sharks, you know, you better be ready. And this was kind of as that first housing boom was starting to happen, and we we picked up a great site in Marubra, you know, 40, 40 units, and we had the whole development pretty much pre-sold. Um, but I needed a mezzanine partner and cause, you know, it was all my money that was in and, um, and 
we needed about an extra, you know, two million bucks to to bridge the principal lender and and what I'd put in. And back then, mezzanine funds were lawyers, right? And uh, and they were very they were they were they were uh, ruthless. Um, I think they saw a young guy, you know, green, and uh, they took advantage. They kind of you know, drew me out to settlement date. I and then defaulted on my settlement date, um, and they just kind of, you know, put me in a very, back against the wall. They tried to get the property direct. Um, you know, played me very well, and I ended up losing everything. Um, so, you know, I had probably close to a million dollars in cash into that project, which was underpinned by family debt. You know, and in the end, I couldn't just pull the pin and go bankrupt. So I had to trade. Like when I say trade. I had to work my way out of the debt, so sold everything um, to pay down the debt. Um, you know, luckily I'd bought a house and it, I remember it was in Five Dock and we had to sell the house and I doubled my money because I, you know, hit the hit the peak of the um, of the housing kind of cycle. And uh, But all that went to just clearing back debt. Um, I think after everything was said and done, I was still behind about 250 grand, right? And uh, we started again. <laughs> so came back into the software industry. Uh, company uh, back then, uh, Tibco, hired me. And uh, I never forget, I'm still very good friends with the guy who hired me, Mark Farmy. And, you know, it's interesting because he tells me the story after the fact, you know, I hired you because I knew you'd be more hungry than anyone else. You know, I was probably least qualified to sell Tibco than some of the candidates he had. Um, but he... After he saw, I guess what I'd been through, he knew I had the, I guess the tenacity, right, to 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 get the job done, and um, so he hired me, and uh, I had three awesome years at Tibco. Um, I, I had my biggest paydays that I'd ever had, you know, and I think the difference was after doing your own business and being an entrepreneur, it changes your mindset, right? It, I wasn't scared anymore of the people I was selling to. Mark taught me a really good lesson. He goes, you know. You've lost more money than a lot of the people you're going to be selling to, Frank. So just remember that, and uh, and that really stuck with me, right? That really uh, hit home. So it it changed the way I sold. It changed the way I thought about business. When I was now selling, I was having a business conversation with the people I was selling to, not just a technology conversation. And and I, I had a very successful, you know, run at Tibco, um, and then you know left there to go to Oracle, and then I think. I went through a few, you know, large software, enterprise software vendors, you know, IBM, um, Oracle, and I realized that whilst I had my, my, my butt kicked in my first startup experience, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, you know, um, and rather than whinge about what these corporates are doing wrong in terms of leadership and how they build their businesses, you know, or they, they, how they look after people, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go do it myself. And so then I I'd met I'd met two guys at a kind of forum where uh, entrepreneurial like minded people get together and I met these two guys there and they became co-founders in in the next business that we started up which was Veltio um, that was the first business in the Salesforce ecosystem that uh, we started three years in we got tapped on the shoulder um, and we sold we had a very successful exit. Um, so, you know, chalked that one up as a win. So, so far I was one and one, you know, um, and uh, yeah, and, and you know, that was, um, that was fun times, you know, like that was in the early days of the Salesforce ecosystem, right? Um, 
and uh, took a detour after that again to go into the health space, um, back to kind of my my roots of high performance and health and wellness because in my in my martial arts experience, and I hadn't, by the way, I'd, I'd never stopped training, you know, I'd always, that has always been the very core to who I am and what I do, but I'd always studied, you know, the body and mind and, and these things, right? And so I thought, you know, I actually want to get some scientific grounding now in this space so i went i went and studied um in a space neurophysics um and uh, uh there was a gentleman in queensland ken Ware, who created a therapeutic model around around the neurophysics kind of domain and um i ended up opening up a rehab center and that was my second massive failure you know i well, like you know, sort of sports rehab or drug and alcohol rehab? Uh, uh, rehab, um, high order rehab. So I was dealing the I was Ken Ken's specialty is spinal cord injury. That's where he actually he's globally he's he's renowned for the work he's done around spinal cord injury. But I I did a lot of work around PTSD and brain injury. Um and you know, a rehab business is capex intensive. So poured a lot of money, had a premium site in the middle of the city. Um, but the worst thing about being an entrepreneur and loving what you do <laughs> is the fact that you love what you do and you're an entrepreneur in mindset because when you can see the good that it does, you forget about the unit economics of the business. And that was a big mistake. Um, you know, we, at the time, um, we didn't have access to insurance funding. We weren't in the allied health space, didn't have a code, all that kind of stuff. And here I am going, yeah, you know, we can do that, right? I'm, you know, I've done these things before and not realise how bureaucratic the system in Australia is around bringing new therapies to market. And for three years, poured money, good money after bad, to be honest, to try and make this work. And in the end, you know, it had nothing to do with what actually what results you were getting. You know, if you couldn't go through the bureaucratic process, you're dead in the water. And so I had to pull the pin on that, you know. So took the IP because we built, we also built like a high-performance framework, you know, because I was doing some work with corporates around kind of resilient, like everyone now talks about resilience, right? Well, we were doing that, you know, back then and, you know, looking at how how do you build a resilient workforce, right? Because when people are usually stressed, they're making bad decisions. Um, you know, you deal with some industries where those bad decisions lead to physical injury, right? Um, so, so we built a framework around that, and it was interesting. So, whilst I had to close down the rehab part of the business, um, when I got, I, I was I was quite literally closing down a company, and I got tapped on the shoulder to start Eight Squad. Um, with a group of investors that just bought a small asset in Melbourne, right? They said, Frank, you know, so I was doing some work for one of these investors in one of his companies, a tech business around his people. And he goes, Frank, you know, you've done it before. Why don't you do it again? You know, Salesforce, it's wide open, right? There's been a lot of acquisition, a lot of movement. Um, I was out of my earnout period, you know, I was unencumbered. I could do it again. And and it was interesting, you know, just from a personal perspective, right? I just had my ass kicked again, like in a, in a fairly significant way, you know, um, even bigger than the first one in terms of losses. <laughs> and, uh, you know, one, I had to get back up from that. And, you know, that put my own theory to the test. Um, and then secondly, but it's really interesting when you're coming off such a failure and you have to turn up 
with an innovation or, you know, growth mindset, right, for launching a new business. And I was literally doing those two things at the exact same time. Um, and so, you know, 8 Squad was born and uh, and I haven't looked back since, three and a half years in and, you know, we've been powering along. And so when you say so the bureaucracy, was it obviously I imagine there was no bulk billing because it didn't go through and then even the private health care was hard. So there's almost 100% exactly. sort of out of pocket. People had to pay. And exactly. then, like you said, the fully loaded costs are a lot more than people are used to paying if they're used to subsidise physiotherapies or treatment. So it's sort of the, the fully loaded, non-subsidised costs not being sort of practical for the average consumer. Correct. So you just couldn't get the volume, right? Um, and our programs were intensive. You know, they were, you know, I was spending, uh, we spend a lot of time with patients, right? And over a very like you know two three month period to get the results we're getting, and that's that's costly, right? And you know we had people that put themselves through that. You know I had a few police officers suffering PTSD at the end of their ropes. I had a young Lebanese guy came out from Lebanon to spend you know two and a half months with me here to get him out of a wheelchair because you know the doctor said he'd never walk again after being in a coma for three months, right? He had you know right hemisphere brain injury, and you know we. We saw the results, you know, and to me it was like black and white, like, guys, how can you deny the results, you know? But without a clinical trial, there's just no other pathway, right, to get acceptance. The good, the the, the, the happy story for neurophysics therapy is that now they're doing a lot of NDIS, NDIA work. They've just started doing some eye care work, and this is all the things we're trying to get happening back then. But kind of this was four, this is now four years after the fact, and there's no way I could have kept funding that high cost model that I had um, over for, for for four years, you know. So whilst it's sad, um, you know, uh, I, I'm glad I went through it. Like I, I still love what we did, and what I've taken out. You know, one of my one of my conditions doing eight squad was you got to let me do it different. You know, like and 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 you know, my chairman. He understood what I meant, right? He says, Frank, I don't care how you do it. We just care about the results, you know. And and I said, mate, I, it's really important to me that I take the the framework that we built to look at people and how we lean in on people development, right? I don't just want to give it lip service. I don't just want to say, oh, yeah, we'll tick a wellness box, you know, and offer yoga and, you know, and coffees and lattes, you know, in the lunchroom or something, right? Like, I want to really lean in to looking at our people as a holistic entity and actually going well beyond just the basic explicit skills for the job, but look at them as 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 human beings, right? Who go back to a family, go back to their communities. And I said it's really important. I've got to do that, or I'm not doing it. And and they've really allowed me a lot of freedom to to test those models in this business. And I think that's what's really equipped us you know like we we launched eight squad six months before COVID hit right um you know so it put everything to the test because people were stressed right um and you know when you're two years into COVID right people it's just people's coping mechanisms have gone out the door right so it really it put a lot of that theory right front and center, um, and and I'm really happy we did it. Like it's hard, and we we also picked a, a radical different business model because that's the other thing we wanted to do. You know, one of my learnings from Veltio was, you know, when we did the first time round, we wanted to create a distributed kind of leadership model, right? But we got it wrong because 
you st- we st- hire, we still had the traditional management hierarchy as, as an underpinning governance model. And so we actually went with a whole different one in 8Squad as well. Um, so, and even that journey of implementing holacracy and, you know, f- changing the leadership dynamic and how decisions get made from a fundamental governance perspective. I mean, that's making that decision, the the kind of high-performance framework decision and doing it all during, like all those things really test your resolve, right, to to stay committed to that. And we made a bunch of mistakes because <laughs> that's one thing I think I've said to all my leaders who, who have joined us is, if you want to do something the way it's been done before, don't come to don't come here. If you want to try something that's legit different, where we're going to make mistakes and that's okay, where we are pushing boundaries. So there's actually no playbook, right? We just got to try shit and you get it right or get it wrong, but you got to be comfortable there. And actually, I think that's what's attracted, you know, the 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 leadership team that I've got. And I'm really glad, man, because uh I think that's what's made the difference. It's certainly what I think has put us into the category, you know, of, of those fast, you know, fast 100, fast 50s and all those awards we got this year. But, you know, I, we've had to do that. Like a lot of companies, especially those who raise money and they can kind of get lazy in terms of returns. You know, we've we've been profitable from day one as a business and we remain EBIT positive. And, um, you know, that's been a really important, uh, important part of, our, our 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 growth story is that you know we've done this being you know EBIT positive the whole the whole way, um, and we've had some pretty stellar growth rates, you know. So so yeah, mate, that's that's kind of where we are today with Eight Squad. And if we go back all the way back to you're saying your teenage years, you know, you, you were sort of struggling at school. Was there someone who pointed you towards martial arts? Like, were you sort of getting in fights, or is just you just didn't like the the content and the teachers? And they said, "Hey, let's do something physical if you don't want to do something uh, academic." How, how did, and was it karate, taekwondo, jujitsu? What what did you sort of? Yeah, so yeah, a lot of good questions there. Um, I was your yeah, typical. I was small, um, you know, and this goes right back to you know primary school. You know, you do get bullied, right? You know, um, back then it wasn't as cool to be uh, ethnic, you know, as it, what it is today. Um, and so you do get bullied, and you know that motivates kids to do things. And and I kind of found, uh, I found uh, when I joined when I went to high school, um, there was a taekwondo school at the school. So that was my ticket where my parents said, okay, you can go do that. And then from there, I quickly crossed over to Kung Fu, a very traditional Kung Fu school. And I excelled very, I was 13, right? And I excelled really fast. Like, I think because, you know, uh, um, what is it? Fears are very positive motivator. (laughs) And, um, you know, I was, I was scared, right? And um, it motivated me to excel. I was, I won my first Australian championship which was in an open cat so that was in the performance space and this was in the open so I was competing against 20 year veteran martial artists right who own schools and I was put in that category and uh I just turned 14 and I won and it kind of shocked everyone um and that was the national championship down in Melbourne, actually, at the Melbourne Town Hall. Um, and it was a William Chung who runs a school in in Little Chinatown there, and he he hosted these nationals, and it was his tournament, and I won it. And 
surprised my instructors, surprised, you know, the whole, all the community who were there because I was unknown. And uh, that put me then into the next year in a national team, in the Wushu team, uh, Australian Wushu team, went to China, competed in the Chinese National Wushu Championships, which is the world championship. Like, you know, Jet Li was the retired champion the year before, right? Um, I did a workshop with him and I was over there. Like it was the who's who really of martial arts competed in, in this particular tournament. And, you know, I was a, I was the youngest in the crew. I was, you know, 15 at the time and all the other people were men, you know. Um, I was on my own. My parents didn't come. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, you know, uh, I, you know I, I started in a very classical space martial arts um, and kind of then migrated it when I hit my, you know, later teens into kind of you, you tr- kickboxing, tie boxing, started and that's where really it went uh, to trouble territory for me, right? Because you're going to get exposed to a whole different, different audience when you start competing in those circles. Um, so now I backed out of that in my early twenties because found myself uh, found myself just in the wrong places. Um, and uh, you know, I I then competed in karate for a good part of ten years, and I won a well a few you know a few world championships in 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 full contact karate and and performance karate as well, um, and uh, then kind of circled back to the internal arts for a long time, um, and 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 funny enough, you know, like coming out of COVID where I haven't had my training partners, I really felt the mental shift of not competing and not being physical, like um, in terms of the mental edge that I'd lost. Um, so I actually went to be start being a beginner again and actually picked jiu-jitsu. Um, I picked Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I started from the beginning. I, I, put, I put all my, you know, I think 30 years of training to that point aside. And I said, no, nah, I, I want to start from white belt and uh, and test myself. And literally uh, it's been a year now. And yes, last year I started competing again in, in BJJ. And so, so far I'm three for three and, uh, you know, and next year my goal is to keep competing, you know. So I believe in being a lifetime learner, you know, um, and constantly kind of trying to just push your mental and physical edge, right, otherwise you know, you start to atrophy yeah, very quickly, especially at 50 years old, mate. i got, I got to keep going. Yeah, and, and how did the people around you, how did their attitudes change as you went from, like you said, a sort of 14-year-old who's been picked on to a 14-year-old who's sort of winning championships? Did that sort of change how people perceived you? Yeah, definitely, but probably for all the wrong reasons, you know. Um, so, you know, when, you, when, when you're a young kid, I guess you 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 start to idolize the wrong kind of role models, you know, in society, and you think being feared and being respected are kind of the same things. Um, they're kind of not. Um, so so yeah, I I I, I, I probably got myself uh, into way too much trouble with that attitude, you know, uh, and because I was pretty good at what I did, you know, um, and uh, fear. It was funny because fear, and it, it's actually the same. <laughs> attitude I had in business for a long time until I learned to get over it, right? Um, my response to fear is to lean in harder. It's to run towards it. And I did, like I did that in martial arts, I always picked the biggest fights, always took on the the ones that scared me most, you know? And I did that in business too. And that's not always a good thing. Um, I think after the second, you know, ass kicking, it really made me sit back and think, you know, and 
understand what the term risk means, <laughs> you know. Um, so now it's, I guess I've learned to understand more acutely what what drives fear. And actually, once you once you conquer that and actually truly conquer fear, then your thinking comes from a whole different place. You know, it took me a long time to get to that realization, to be honest. Um, but because uh, up until even up until you know pivot the the rehab business i was driven when i felt fear my natural response was to lean in and go at it as opposed to sit back and go no hold on let's understand it you know um so yeah it, it's been a very interesting journey you know to 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 have that relationship and it, and it very much came from a martial arts training right in terms of how i respond even at a business level it's the same thing it's just <laughs> you're just using a different set of tools yeah and I, I mean in some ways did you see some of those business risks as um less serious as someone who didn't have a martial arts background they might say hey there's a half million dollar risk that's a big risk but you say well compared to you know a, a really difficult fight a physical fight that's just money it's just dollars it's 100% you know, 100% like it was, yeah, absolutely. Like for me, like it's money, you know, like I've had people trying to take my head off quite literally, you know, um, that's fear. That's, that's, that's a problem, right? You can, you can make money, you know? And so I never had a healthy relationship with losing money, you know, and that, that caused me to take some really big bets, you know? Um, and, and, uh, you know, my chairman actually said to me once, it was quite funny, after a few drinks, he goes, Frank, you're really good at making money. You're just really bad at holding on to it. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I I don't mind taking risk, you know, but now I've I've definitely I think I've definitely learned my uh, my lesson after a long period of time. I think now my relationship with fear and risk, you know, spe- during eight squad, it it definitely has matured my thinking a lot. And I've done, done a lot of personal and you know, soul searching and development, you know. Um, and I think it's, it's gone to that level now where I understood what was driving that response, you know, and, and, I, and I, at eight squad, it's really given me the opportunity to test even my own ideals and beliefs around my relationship with fear, because, you know, we've been operating in, a, in an environment where there was no playbook, right? There was no, there was no known way through, right? Um, and it's really had to uh, challenge you know how I've lent into that and certainly how I work with my team and it's it's been good it's been really yeah it's been uh, the eight squad journey has been a, a a a deeper success beyond just the financial success of the business for me it's it's really helped me grow in area in areas that you know I was kind of ready to now kind of face and you mentioned some of your early jobs where you sort of fell into tech you sort of struggled a bit, but you sent something quite different with the Danish company and their culture. What was sort of different that you sensed straight away that was quite different from your previous roles that weren't as aligned? You know what? It was actually, it's really clear because it's so distinct for me, right? So, and, and you know, Lars, who was CEO, who also friends to this day, you know, Lars broke the definition of what a CEO meant to me, right? This was a guy that was full of life. And just he made me feel like I was actually part of his exec suite by being very transparent with what he wanted to do with the business, how he looked about financing, how he looked about raising capital, things that I'd never been exposed to, never been spoken to about, right? 
and the culture, he had this very distinct culture. So, you know, they all they all wear black suits and black shirts, the men in black, right? And yeah, I, the IT factory thing was about being a man in black. And so he had this really distinct look and feel. Everyone was bought into it. Everyone, everyone was passionate about it. Everyone felt like didn't matter where you were in a hierarchy, you could speak directly, you could speak straight. And that really stuck with me, you know, um, having that kind of access to the CEO. And to this day, in all my, I do the same. Like that's one thing I definitely learned, which I try pa- uh, pay forward, right? With all, even my own stuff, you know, I like to say when something's going wrong in your life, there's no hierarchy in picking up the phone and giving me a call. And whether that be inside the business or outside the business, right? And and I learned that from IT Factory, you know. Um, so I learned a lot from Lars in terms of that entrepreneurial spirit, you know, um, you know, letting us two young guys who'd never started a business before lead their the Australian operation and build it out, and you know, even go and identify an acquisition. Like I, you know, never knew what an acquisition was, right? Like I'd never had been exposed to those kind of things, and so being front and center you know, speaking to Lars about what to look for, how to look at it, you know, how to look at evaluation. It just, I, I, I was immediately in love with, you know, uh, the idea of that kind of entrepreneurial spirit. I'd grown up in a family of small business owners, you know, my mum, my, my dad, you know, they they were in the retail industry, you know, opening shops. Um, so I'd been exposed to kind of, guess, being your own boss all my life, right? But experiencing it at that kind of corporate level was very different, and uh, that was my first real taste, and it really stuck. Like I, once I had that taste, I compared every job against that, to be honest, and uh, nothing, nothing matched up. Yeah, and so, so you mentioned you had you know a few wins, a few losses along sort of the business journey, and then you, you've got, um, started Eight Squad with these. You know, you, you're learning as you go, and you've evolved across these different industries you've been involved in. What was the first 12 months like running sort of eight squad? Yeah, look, it was interesting. So, you know, we, like I said, there was a, uh, it, it came out of a, a small acquisition, you know, a small team of people. It was about 15 or 20 people in this team. And, you know, we literally, hit, it wasn't just about putting a new name on the door. So we had to pull that business apart, you know, um, you know, I'm the outsider coming in, taking over. Um, the two founders of that business stayed in the business, um, stayed in as shareholders and um, were reporting to me. And I really, like, I'm grateful to this day that they actually <laughs> allowed, you know, me to do that. Um, and um, the hard thing was we were pulling apart a company and putting it back together while trying to keep the plane flying at the same altitude, Right. That was really hard because you actually have to take a, it's not like starting from scratch and hiring people into a vision. You actually, it's a change process and you got to take these people on the change journey. Um, and at this point, I was the minority, right? Um, so that was really tough. Um, but it was great. Like, you know, they, the team were open to it. And a lot of those people are still with business today, which is really great. You know, not everyone came along for the journey. And that was what like- were some of those changes that you saw? Like what was going wrong or what did you want to do differently? And then Well, uh- you know, look, I think the guys had recognized that they hit their limits in how big they could build a business. So they were open to doing things differently, right? So and that was top to bottom, you know, from how we went to market, you know, how we built a brand. 
um, how we communicated that brand, you know, through to the operating model, the very essence of the business, the operating model, you know, said, no, we're doing it differently, you know. Um, And, you know, people had been used to working for this business and operating a certain way, and I'm saying it's all going, you know. Um, It's what got us here. It's not what's going to get us there. And, you know, some people opted out of that journey, right, and that's okay. Um, The ones who have stayed with us are still with us and smashing it, you know, like they've come, you know, we've had a, I'd say a majority, you know, come for the full, uh, for the full journey with us. But it was, it was interesting because it's, it's at some point you've got to let go of the past and, you know, it's this constant unfolding of going from something to something, right? And to be honest, you know, like even the current team, they didn't really see the impact of the change. The imp- see, there's always a lag, right? And and so there comes this period of doubt of, but you know, revenue's still the same. You know, we haven't. Well, what are we doing all this for, right? And then, kind of as we came out of the first six months, I never forget it. COVID hits, and then we're kind of into 2020, right? And at about you know. Just pre-Christmas of that first year, we started to nail some big deals, which were very different kind of deals than the ones they've done in the past. And that then got people's attention. And then, you know, we backed it up with some 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 other outcomes that were tangible. People started to see. And then they went, oh, okay, I get it, you know, and they could see then how the market was responding to the brand and how they were responding to the new ways of doing things, right? And so... But there's that lag time. It was at least nine months, you know, and so keeping people motivated, keeping people committed to the journey, keeping, you know, um, keeping them in the loop of the thinking, you know, um, was really important. Uh, You know, even when I thought I was communicating enough, often I wasn't, you know, you got to really over-communicate, you know, and and I believed in transparency. So, you know, I'll be very upfront with, Here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. Actually, I don't know if it's going to work or not yet, you know. But guys, this is these this is the reasoning, and you know, come along for the journey. So, and a lot of the staff tell me today, you know, they were skeptical, right? Um, and that's okay. You've got to be you've got to be open to allowing your team to be skeptical. And what was the most controversial in their mind part? Like they used to do something this way, and you said we're not going to do that anymore, and we're going to go over here. And like so there's a leap of faith before anything sort of pays off. What were some of the ones that was sort of the the hardest to get people on board with? Look, it was the whole thing, you know, because <laughs> it was it's it literally was a change top to bottom. You know, it was a, uh, um, you know, how we changed from like a more traditional you know, hierarchy of, you know, of, of leadership into this kind of decentralised model. That was, you know, people going, why are we doing this, right? Um, there was that. There was, you know, the whole, because um, it even happened at Salesforce, right? When I came back into the ecosystem saying, guys, this is where we are, but this is where we're going to be. Well, people nodded and smiled and said, Frank, it's great to see you back and, yeah, really excited. They didn't believe it, you know. They didn't believe we would do what, you know, because we were talking a big game. Um, so you had it with vendor and staff, right? And so they hear the big the, the big game talk, but until they see the results, they they question it, you know. So 
you know, how we how we propose deals, how we structured deals. It was just very different to what they were used to. How we organized ourselves, how we, you know, like uh, my first hire was my head of people and culture. You know, like that was my first hire outside of the team that was in situ, right? And I was a month in. Even my board didn't believe in that hire. You know, they'll say, Frank, why is that your first hire? I said, guys, it's going to be my, my most important. And, and it has been. It was the absolute most important, you know. The 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 move to the whole high performance model, people and co- like people going, oh, what's all this about? You know, what's you know, like whilst I was passionate in it, it took a lot of selling, right? To get people bought into that, you know, and to really feel the difference and that the value it gives them. Because until they feel that value, it's just noise, it's just words, right? Um, so yeah, it was it was a lot of work. It was it was definitely uh, uh it it, it it put me to the test, that's for sure. And, and then over time, like you said, that results lag and then it starts to, to pay off and you grew 103% last financial year, growing revenue to over $17 million a year, becoming one of the, the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. Did people become more bought in at that point or did people say, well, that worked to get us there, but as we get bigger, then we have to sort of default back into old patterns or were people again even more on board once they saw the growth and the result? Well, you know, you look at the results from last year, you know, the the year before was similar. Like we'll grow, it was, you know, 100 plus percent, right? So from the day we took we took over the business, you know, we grew double every year. Um, and as you got bigger, that got harder, right? But we still did it last year, you know. And, um, you know, yeah, people definitely, they saw like if you profiled in three and a half years of business, the type of customer, the type of deal we're doing today versus what we we're doing in a very short time ago, you, you simply, it's a different business. It's not the same business, right? And so people feel that, you know, they're now getting opportunities. Um, the growth parts, the fact that there's a proper people development strategy, you know, and, you know, they lean into that now. They can see the benefits that we're investing in them as human beings, not just, you know, not just work assets, right? So, um, and that took time too to get right. So, you know, the first year, we, we there was a few programs we tried. We we can. We, they, they they weren't working yet. We had to tweak, you know. So we probably went through two years of trial and error in certain how we configured how how programs rolled out until we started to get it right. And it's only been in the last twelve months that I think now that we're really getting that momentum. It's okay. Now we've got a rhythm here. It's working, right? So it's it's definitely taken time. And do you see other entrepreneurs and CEOs that you know, are they curious and they want to learn how you do it or are they quite stuck in their ways? Or they say, oh, it sounds interesting, but here's why it wouldn't work for me. Are other business leaders, you know, are they open-minded to some of these ideas you have? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I think a lot of business leaders are genuine, like they 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 want to try new things. I think I, I always caution, you know, especially those who are like who are um investigating kind of these whole decentralized leadership models. I say you can't half do it. You know, it's like you're all in or you're not, you know, like it's safer to be all out than half in, you know. Um, and so definitely there's there's interest there, but there's there's you know probably not everyone's business is ready for that. There there's a whole cohort of of great leaders and entrepreneurs who I talk to that really are leaning in and kind of these alternative models of 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 organizational design. Um, and um, and that's exciting, right? That's really exciting because I think it's such a new space 
And I think there is a whole cohort of entrepreneurs who are really leaning into this quite hard now. Um, but I don't know if there's one right answer. Like the way we've done it is not necessarily the only way the, or the right way to do it, just the way we've done it, you know. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see that evolve over time and see how a lot of other people do it. But, uh, yeah, there's definitely interest. I think there's genuine interest um, in in how we've done our kind of people development piece. Um, a lot of founders and leaders I talk to, you know, they 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 are interested. They they generally want to do better there, um, and they're open to those ideas as well. And do you see it being harder often on the managers who are going from a, a top down to a decentralized, or is it often harder for the staff when they're used to being in a familiar setup and then they go to decentralized, or they both have to adapt? But do you find one adapts better than the other generally? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Um. I think it's harder for the staff because staff are so used to saying, who's my boss, right? I don't have a boss. I don't have a but Like I don't have a direct line anymore. What's going on, you know? So I think that's definitely a massive chasm for them to cross. Um, even though there is still hierarchy, even in a decentralized model, right? Um, but that, yeah, I, because that's experienced on mass, leaders, you know, and again, I won't call them managers, but leadership, can happen from anywhere, and that's also a hard thing for people to get around their heads. And typically, people who have been leaders, really, which means they've been they've had management roles, right, um, in other companies, are used to having. A, I, I'm clear on you know who reports to me, and that shifting and changing has challenged my, my leadership team. But they came because they're attracted to the idea of something new, and so they've adapted pretty pretty quickly. It's just at times it's natural to want to default to old ways of thinking, you know? So we, we, we catch ourselves, we go, no, no, no. Okay. Hold on. How do we do it? In, you know, using the model that we've set up. And so, you know, we all, we all have to keep ourselves honest to that, but um, yeah, I definitely think staff probably struggled more because they're just so used to going, yeah, I've got this one direct line. I'm clear off I go. Right. Um, and that's kind of not the case in our business. And, and how do you communicate that in the hiring process? You know, you've got applicants, you're hiring internally for a role on your on your in your business, and you want to obviously sell the benefits of what you do, but also filter out those who are going to you know not get it or aren't interested in it. How do you sort of communicate what, in some ways, is a bit abstract and unique yeah. to attract the right people and filter out those who who wouldn't enjoy it and wouldn't really be a good fit for it? We're very upfront, you know, and we we talk about it. You know, we talk about how we use our dojos, which is we essentially, you know, you've got two places, right? You've got your circles where work gets done, you know, and it's very easy to identify, well, who is your kind of key lead, your go-to and your feedback loop for where work gets done. But then there's where do you get enriched as an individual? And that's a different place. Yeah, and that's our dojos. And how do they work? And so when you kind of extract abstract it out that way, people get it. Oh, right. You know, so... And, and I can actually pick which dojo I'm in and I can change there. Oh, okay, that's pretty cool. And I can start my own dojo if I'm passionate about something. So that excites people, right? And and then over here, if you want to lead, you can. You know, there's and, – and I guess the key thing is, you know, there's – in our model, you know, in a lot of traditional businesses, your access to power determines where you sit in the pecking order of the company, right? In this model – Actually, your access to power has no bearing on your ability to influence decisions. And that's proven because I've been overridden myself in many decisions because we rely on the governance process 
and it, the, we stay true to it, which means just because you convince Frank, who might be the CEO in title, that something's a good idea doesn't mean that your good idea is going to get adopted, right? And that's really powerful. So, and and we've had people who who in most companies would be considered at the bottom of the pecking order who have made instrumental change through their ideas because it's been put into a process that's ubiquitous and independent of hierarchy. And that that works. And that's I, actually I'm most proud of those moments, you know, when we see that. And, and as those things happen, everyone sees it and they go, oh, wow, okay, well, if I've got an idea now, I, I can actually, I can get something done about it. And that's that's really good, especially now that we're, you know, we've broken 100 people. And so when you, you know, when you when you get to that scale, right, and and you see that working in real time, it, it it's pretty exciting. And how do the clients sort of um, experience that change? I mean, do some of them say, "Who's the tech lead on this project? Who's the senior consultant?" And are they confused? Or how do you sort of get them on board with the benefit they're going to get versus, like you said, a traditional, um, you know, alternative? Yeah. So the benefits are now your tech lead or your PM or your senior con are more empowered, right, to make decisions because the decision-making process is pushed further down the edge, right? Um, And so actually you don't have to rely on complex decisioning, right, to to, we can stay more client-centric with how we make decisions, right? And when a tough decision has to get made, it's very clear in terms of domains of authority, how those decisions get made. And you don't have to go lobby people. You know what I mean? You don't have to go and and get your political support, right, to get something done. Yeah. So so if anything, it's our clients see that, right? They feel that. They sometimes it's not always obvious, but they'll retrospect. They'll go, wow, like actually, you know, we felt that difference and we felt that your people, Frank, felt empowered and 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 showed up in a manner which you know they felt like they would they could actually help make decisions. And I think that's that's definitely something that that we we've seen now starting to play out with our clients. Yeah, so they can actually solve the problem faster, better. And they say, oh, let me call my boss and hold on and let me get approval. I don't know. They can actually solve it, and that's what the client wants at the end of the day, right? There's there's approval processes. It's just that they're a lot more transparent. And they're not based on politics. They're just based on good governance. Mm. And, and so if we zoom out a little bit from 8 Squad, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? You've been involved with a range of different industries and businesses and sectors. Um, I imagine you sort of chat to people in, in other markets as well. What are Australian entrepreneurs doing really well? And then where is there sort of further room for improvement in the sort of Australian entrepreneur startup, scale-up sort of ecosystem? Yeah, look, you know, I think I think it's tough, right, being an entrepreneur in this country, you know, and I think um, we need more, you know, we need more entrepreneurs. Um, and whilst there's a lot of incubator programs and I think they're good, I think it's not enough. I think how we look at access to capital, how failure, you know, how we treat failure, like, you know, I've had two big ones and it was all my money, you know. Now when it's someone else's money and how entrepreneurs get affected by that, right, you know that those rules. Um, you know how we support entrepreneurs, um, but not just to. I want to be clear. It's not just go. Oh yeah, fail fast and fail off and say yeah, fail is okay. It's not. You know, it's not okay, right? We don't want to lose money, but how do we support entrepreneurs in that process? You know, so that one they don't fail or. 
they don't have monumental fails that let a lot of people down, you know. Um, I think Australia in this region, like if you look at a lot of the economic um, uh, commentary, right, Asia-Pacific is probably the region to be in, right, in, in this next period. You know, the Americas are, are, are going to find it tough. Europe's finding it tough. And, you know, a lot of the a lot of the um, commentary around uh, which regions are going to prosper in these next five to ten, it's all in our region, in, you know, Asia-Pac. And that's because we've got a lot of very big domestic markets in this region, right? Um, and I think the role that Australia plays in the region is really important. You know, and I can tell you now, there's been more M and A activity in my space than than there's been M and A activity in like some core European markets, right? Um, it's it's us. It's still hot. It's still strong, and you know, we get tapped on the shoulder. I'd say every two weeks, right? Um, and it's kind of interesting to see who and why they're coming into this, and it's because all the companies have recognised in Asia Pac, right? There's there's opportunity, and they want to have. It, whether it be, you know, um, access to talent and, and and wage arbitrage at the most basic level. But, you know, we haven't gone down that route of just pure wage arbitrage. All our people are based in Australia, right? We have not offshored at all, right? So when I look at the regional opportunity, it's not about offshoring. It's actually about going deep into the community and, 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 and into the um, cultures of the domestic opportunities, right? Um and I think Australia plays a really important role, right? So we need more entrepreneurs, but it's tough. It's mentally tough. Um, you know, I can tell you now, like the impact on family and 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 it's hard, you know, like I, you know, our our, our entrepreneurs get burnt out, you know. Um the this the whole, yeah, it's it's getting harder to run a company. Um, and I think we need to we need to make it easier, right? Um so, so do you think some of the compliance, red tape, plus like sort of access to capital, are there other things that you think would sort of help? Just just support, mental health support for entrepreneurs, you know. Um, it's I've got a lot of practices, right, and even with all my practices, you know, I have my days. Um, and so I think this, those those support networks you know are really important and i know there's a lot of like you know um a lot of groups like the you know um uh, i forget their names now but they're like you know they they cater for kind of peer ceo like networking. eo and things yeah, like yeah, that yeah yeah all these, yeah which are really good you know and and i think they're really great um you know but you know sometimes not all entrepreneurs can access that there's a cost to those things sometimes right and you know um and especially if you're a ceo and you know you've got to go to the board and say hey look i want to put myself in this five grand a year to go what are you talking about you know not all boards are open to that kind mm. of you know supporting the ceo in that manner and but i think it's actually it's critical because it's tough yeah you you need you need support and being able to have vulnerable conversations, right, where you can say to someone, listen, I have no idea what I'm doing here or I'm struggling with this issue or I don't know what to do, you know. Um, I'm lucky. I've got a very good board. My relationship with my chairman, like I could not have a better uh, yin and yang, you know, in terms of relationship and that's – but not all entrepreneurs are lucky to have that, you know, and I've, I've, I've been witness to some disastrous 
relationships where they've been just the entrepreneur has been smashed, you know, and it's unfair, right? And it's I've seen entrepreneurs um, fall apart, mate. You know, quite frankly, right? Um, and it's really sad. You know, there's some peers that I consider my peers, and um, I've seen the mental health issues that they've then faced and struggled with, close some failures, and just through just terrible actors in 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 their in the fabric of their support infrastructures, right? So, yeah, I think we have to have better boards as well. You know, more educated boards, people boards that actually can support entrepreneurs. Um, so I think I think there's a lot of there's layers to this conversation. Yeah, and like you said, there's a lot of companies have like an employee assistance program, but there's no sort of entrepreneur assistance, right? And then some yeah. don't have a board, or they the board is maybe a bit more hostile or corporate, yeah. or you know, where's our you know capital and our returns and our equity? Not how are you doing? Like kind of you know, as the entrepreneur CEO yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I've had my moments um, in in these three years and. For personal matters that that were just you know I might have struggled with and uh, you know I had a chairman who goes Frank I can see something's off what's going on you know just that just just that conversation right um, without having a fear of reprisal or that some something then is going to happen that my job's on the line right um, and you know that's helped me immensely you know and like I said I'm a, I'm a, I'm I'm someone with a lot of disciplines and a lot of practices. Um, and even I needed that, right, from my from my board. Um, so I think that's important. Um, yeah, you know, we've got EAP as well, but we go further than that, you know, with our employees. But to your point, the higher up the pecking order you get, <laughs> the more lonely it gets, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, I think I think that's definitely something we should collectively look at for entrepreneurs. And what would you say to someone who's maybe 18 to 21 today? You know, they've just maybe finished high school or they've finished TAFE or uni and they're, they're trying to figure out what to do, where to go. They're not sure. Maybe they've got, again, different sort of interests and they've got some curiosity about business, but, again, they don't know where to start. Um, what would you sort of say to someone in that situation right now? Look, I'd say you got time, you know, like go go do stuff and fail. You know, like it's honestly don't overthink it, you know, like I, I just, <laughs> it's so easy to overthink it that, you know, to benchmark yourself against, you know, Insta successes, you know, which are often, you know, full of shit, sorry, yeah, but, you know, and that that whole social media culture is just shocking, right, just sets the wrong tone for, you know, what success looks like and often it's empty, you know, but that's what these young kids are comparing themselves against um, and I think, it, like actually you want to have scars, you want to get battle-hardened. So go try shit and fail because you've got a good 10 years, right? You know, I had my first failure at 30, big one, right? And I still, it was okay, you know, starting again, right? And so consider the 20 to 30, like that 10 years of just go and experiment, go and try stuff. Um, and but But I think become a deep practitioner, don't, don't just try, like, you know, I really, especially in the current social media kind of culture where fake it till you make it, you know, no, mate, go make it, you know, and then talk about that, you know, don't, you know, often everyone wants to be the the the, the online coach before they've actually achieved anything, you know, and uh, I think that's probably the thing against most 18 to 20-year-olds because they just want instant success um, and the only way you can succeed is actually get in battle right like you, you got to go 
you got to get bloody. You got to you got to go have the battle. You got to learn, um, and you should be focused on that. So that would be my message to kind of eighteen to twenties at the moment. Are you glad those uh, social media distractions weren't there when you were sort of eighteen yourself? Hundred percent. Yeah, hundred um, percent. You know, it was you kind of had back then. You had the you didn't have it in your face as much, but you still had the stories, right, of entrepreneurs and successes. And so you still, it's very easy. Oh, well, you know, if I'm not there by this date, you know, I, yeah, I, I'd hate to think what it'd be like if social media was around when I was going through it. Um, I'm glad I wasn't, you know. So I think it's infinitely harder. And um, the brain gets hijacked so easy today. And I think for the young guys coming up, the young gals coming up, They've got to actually build the discipline of switching off that that hijack mechanism, and that's hard. It's really hard. So I kind of think that the young kids coming up today have a whole another layer of challenge that we just never had, you know. So yeah, I'm kind of glad I'm from where I am now and not having to do it all again in you know this in this climate. And what does the next five years look like for Eight Squad? Do you have a, a like you, you've got a clear culture? You've done really well so far but do you have a medium-term vision of of where you want to be in sort of five years the direction you want to take it you know look um yeah it's interesting so we're kind of looking at the economic climate um the opportunity the regional opportunity um for us growing the company now is about growing the opportunity for our people and um I think there's a really exciting opportunity in the region and how we do that, you know, is is kind of really what's on the forefront of our mind right now. Um, and for me, it's not about the brand on the door. It's about the collective that you're part of. And, and I, I, yeah, look, it's, it's, it's definitely, I think, an inflection point. Um, you know, I think we're at that point where interest rates have kind of a, peaked you know i'll say peaked they might go up again they might come down a bit but we're we're not going to keep going through a set of massive rises so i think people get used to that idea right that'll settle down um there's no such thing as the new norm right i think right you start with remote first and work your way back from there um we know that full remote is not good for social connection um so okay how do we find our way back to what's a healthy organization look like and how we work workplace and remote working and all that kind of stuff but how do we look at really embracing what is going to be i think turbulent times right and but looking at that through the lens of opportunity right what opportunity does create and i think the companies that have their fundamentals strong will come out really strong you know um and that's exciting, right? I think I think those companies that really have those basics right um, will do well amongst the turbulence. But I definitely think there's going to any companies that just don't have those fundamentals right are, are going to feel it, especially now that cash isn't cheap anymore. You know, that's going to change a lot of things, right? So, um, yeah, you can't just kind of buy your way to success. Yeah, and do, do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with? Oh, <laughs> I've said a lot of things. Um, no, I don't think so. I think it's been it's been great conversation. I really hope the audience takes something out of it. But uh, I, I, I guess final parting words. No, exciting times ahead. I hope we continue the growth. You know, charge and yeah, looking forward to the next uh, next five years. 
Excellent. Thanks so much, Frank. Thank you, mate. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.